right, I hope everyone had a good lunch. And I'm always trying to find ways to keep us awake after the meal. <laughs> so I'm interested in any questions or comments you have. Yes, so the question is about sitting down for meditation and the mind is busy and it's not settling down and maybe after a few minutes it settles down or maybe it doesn't and how do you encourage the mind to become still and there are a few things that you can do um, one is to see if you have if you can set aside a little bit of time before you sit down to meditate to do something that's calming you know because sometimes a little walk or washing the dishes or something that's doesn't require mental activity. And during that time, kind of letting your system know that you're getting quieter, you're going to go meditate. It's helpful to have one place that you meditate all the time where your, your whole system kind of knows this is what we're going to do now. I think for many people, lighting candles or chanting are helpful to start to give that cue to the body, to the mind, to become still and tranquil. Sometimes I think about the routine a lot like when you're putting children to bed, you have a bedtime routine, then they get used to that, then they start to get sleepy, you know, by the time they get into their pajamas and brush their teeth and you read the story. <laughs> so we can do it. We can have something similar in mind to slow our mind down because most of us are really um, needing to think a lot, perhaps for what we do in our life. And we get a lot of stimulation. So that's, those are some ideas. But then when, when you sit down, uh, if you have a meditation object, uh, for me, I use uh, Anapanasati most of the time. So mindfulness of in and out breathing and the first 11 steps or so are really about getting the whole body and mind to be calm and focused. And, um, and so when you're used to using a certain med meditation object and you really determine, you're determined to just keep your focus there, that really helps. And the mind just starts to turn towards that. So calming the body first, calming the mind. And then if it's still um, active and agitated, maybe there's some particular thing going on that needs some attention and you could just use that opportunity to reflect on whatever that issue is. And then come back to calming the mind again. To kind of see what's going on. And sometimes if the mind is very, you know, interested in chewing on something, you can give it a, a, a Dhamma theme, maybe even a quote from the Buddha about the stillness, mind becoming still, something like that. Some, some way of thinking. Again, it's a little like chanting, doing chanting before you meditate. You have some you know, some section of a sutta or something that you reflect on to help the mind focus and become calm. So those are some ideas. 
right? Mm -hmm. You can look for a passage that really strikes you and then type it up and print it up and put it by your shrine. And then you can memorize it. And memorizing portions of the suttas is really beautiful to do anyway. So that you really, really see what inspires you. You're welcome. Okay, so this question is about dependent origination and how does it ever end? Is it our, I guess more, more accurately does it have any bounds or is it, how far does it spread out? So the way I relate, and I think this is the intention, the, the chain of dependent origination is a process. And so it's not like a thing that has some size. It's just a series of cause and effect. And that series, that, those, that chain of cause and effect continues to happen and it goes around and around and around as long as we are still uh, following the same pattern of you know, coming into being, having the unfinished karma, the unfinished formations and developing out of that to again, take in what the senses can uh, take in and become caught up in craving, desire, and clinging. And then it goes around again. Okay. So when there's suffering, the Buddha said there are two options. You can go into despair or even there words keep that going, or you can develop faith and seek a solution. And so when there's, when faith arises that there is a way out of suffering, then you start to follow the path. And that's really where the, this chain of dependent origination becomes a chain of transcendence. And there are still causal steps. And that's where it starts to lead to awakening. And the, the kinds of uh, steps I talked about earlier from the sutta where it begins with virtue and then non-regret and so on. That's one of the kind of passages in the suttas where the Buddha is describing how the cause and effect transcending out of the, the cycle of rebirth occurs. So I don't know if that's anywhere near what you were thinking about in terms of how much does dependent origination spread out. Maybe were you thinking like, does this just apply to everything? Maybe spreading out in that way? Yes. This is a description of how things work in samsara. Given that we're living beings and we come into rebirth and we develop you know, sense faculties, et cetera, all of the name and form and everything that leads up to that. So it, is a, it is relevant to living beings, living being. taking existence. So, you know, um, I mean, it's certainly true that material objects, rocks, 
trees, you know, things without consciousness come into existence and go out of existence again. But it's not quite the same thing because they don't have craving and clinging the way the mind does. Okay. So there, there are places where it's applied. It's, it's applicable to living beings with, you know, like certainly the Buddha was talking to human beings and devas most of the time. I hope that's useful. Yeah. There are conditions that are applicable for this process. Conditions that are like applicable. a living being, like this process is happening for you. It's happening for everyone, but it is just the description of a process that, that's occurring. <laughs> I think it's important not to think about it too much. As we get caught up in our ideas and theories, and actually maybe it's more important to just see where can I see a piece of this chain actually happening in my experience? So a lot of times it's easier to start at the end kind of with um, death. You know, the Buddhists, you know, talked about, well, what's the cause of death? What's the fundamental requirement that makes death possible or inevitable and it's birth. So when you come back to you know, how does that happen? You might have a better handle on it. You're becoming, there's a becoming and then there's birth and there's death. The sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. And we still have ignorance. So it all starts all over again, right? So if, if you look or looking at the part where you know, the six sense bases come into being and then you have contact and then you have feeling. You know, just looking at the parts you can really identify. And try not to overthink it. Questions, comments, anything about kindness? The question is about the situations uh, in reflection back over life and maybe even particularly in childhood. And, you know, there's, there's this offering of kindness, but it's not met with openness and gratitude. It's met, met with maybe some unkind response, maybe even a traumatic response or something that causes uh, trauma. And then if it's if that happens, how do we respond? And we, we might think, okay, well, I should have compassion for this person um, and watch or be still be kind. And that's, you know, but that may not be the way we feel. Did I capture that? Yeah. And what do we do? Yes, we might be taken advantage of. And this started to come up before we broke uh, for lunch. And so it's important, again, to have boundaries. Now, this is hard when you're a child. You're just, you may be in an environment where you don't have a larger context and you don't know 
what should be happening because this is all you know. But eventually as we become adults and we, we are able to gain a broader perspective, then we can appreciate like what's really appropriate to do and what isn't. You know, what's going to put an end to abusive behavior, what's going to um, get me out of a situation where I'm taken advantage of. Because being taken advantage of is not the point here. And it's like, we need to use wisdom. Um, I mean, you know, there are ways in which our kindness is not appreciated that doesn't really cause any harm. And, and to some degree, the harm that we experience is something we can ourselves choose not to take on. So I remember a talk Ajahn Jai Sora was giving once, this is a really long time ago, maybe even 1998 or something in Thailand. And he was telling the residents there, the people staying at Wapananachat, you know, when someone is being, let's see, how did he put it? Someone can do you physical harm. The body is subject to being harmed. They can hurt you physically, but they can't hurt you mentally or emotionally unless you participate. Now this is as an adult. So the idea that we have a choice of taking that in or not. Now this is really assuming a pretty healthy mind um, that can identify that whatever you say, whatever someone says to you or whatever, you know, kind of psychological game or whatever they play that you can have the choice to pull away from that and not buy into it, not accept it, not listen in, in that, not believe in it. Of course, there are a lot of circumstances where this is hard to do, especially if you're in a situation where someone is kind of doing this over and over again, because the mind starts to believe what it hears over and over again. You start to internalize things. So it's up to us to really be cautious about that. And when I talk about being consistently kind, again, it's important that we use wisdom. It's, it's not about giving people what they want all the time. It needs to be something that's good for everyone involved, including yourself. And so if you give, and you give and someone takes advantage and you see that that's, it's not good for them, it's not good for you, then you gotta find a way to change that dynamic. I know someone who, um, there was this woman who had one brother and their whole life as children, the brother, liked taking advantage of her. And she knew this, obviously. This is a reality. He always, you know, if they were dividing anything up, he always wanted two thirds of everything, you know? And just always wanted more for himself. And then after they were adults and, you know, they went their separate ways and all of that, but 
their mother, their father died and then their mother was still alive. And she kept saying to the daughter, I don't want you and your brother to have any trouble when I die. And the daughter is thinking, there's no way this is not going to be any trouble. <laughs> you know, because I know he's going to just like want I, the parents left this will that said they wanted things divided equally. And I don't know if you've had this situation, but we've seen it a lot of times where even perfectly reasonable people become very strange when they go through an inheritance and they start getting greedy. I mean, sometimes people say, I, I thought I knew these people, but I can't believe what I'm experiencing here. And I think there are some really good reasons for that. There's a kind of a, a definite shaking at the roots when you lose your parents, you know, that can happen, right? Regardless, there was this situation where the brother wanted much more than his share. And what the sister did was she consulted experts. She didn't fight. She didn't have any harsh words. She went to uh, someone who knew the value of things and could give an expert opinion. <clears throat> Fortunately, when she took that back to the brother, he accepted it. You know, it's like, you don't just say, okay, you can have two thirds necessarily. It wasn't what the parents wished. You wanna honor what they wished. And so it's like, these are real life situations that we have to look at. It's not, valuable to be a doormat. We have to care for ourselves as well as others. And whatever the beautiful part of this is the sister really didn't come away with any um, uh, ill will or bad feelings about him. She just knew this was his character. And it's like, whatever that's about, that's his problem. And so, you know, it's like, this is, where, this is where we are training our own mind and we are developing our own character. And we are responsible for that. And we can't take responsibility for anyone else's, no matter how much we care about them. And so this is, this is where we have to see which side is mine, what part is mine, and what part is theirs, and how do I manage this part and keep that clean and clear and do my best. And if I make mistakes, do what I need to do to make amends and not do that again as much as possible. And another thing that comes up here is what happens when, you know, someone, says, someone is abusive and they say they're sorry and you forgive them. And then they do it again. And the cycle happens again and again and again. And I think the wisdom says, that's not okay. You don't let that continue. You step away, you do something, what you can do to bring yourself out of that situation. Because when we say we're sorry, it should also mean that we're gonna put practice into place to not do the same mistake again. It doesn't mean we won't ever slip again, but we have to make that real effort and we can change. And we can teach the mind to be changeable, that we can actually be
present with our own patterns in a way that we can really work with them, change them. Any questions from people online? So everybody, could you hear that? She was talking about, you're supposed to be kind equally to everyone, but I'm more kind to the people I'm close to that I love than I am the strangers. Okay, so here's the way I think about it. We can have this heart of loving kindness for everyone, but those people who are close to us we really have a special relationship with, and we have some special responsibilities there. So, you know, if we come to that place in our practice where we really do have that metta, that loving kindness for every living being, we still are going to have more interactions and, and more opportunities and more that we can do with kindness for those people that are sharing our life that we have a relationship with parents, children, partners, close friends. I mean, we're not going to be probably at the bedside when that stranger is dying, but we might be at the bedside of the person in our family. So, and, and we don't have the, the intrinsic permission to be as involved with strangers as we do with our the people that are close to us in our life. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, fulfilling that kindness with those people close to us. And we're kind in ways with strangers that are appropriate for the people we don't know. <laughs> you know, um, I know someone who, you know, she doesn't really have, um, what am I trying to say? If we behave in ways with strangers as if we're too familiar, that can be a, a problem, that can be threatening. You know, it's like we have to be careful about how we interact with people. And there's a certain kind of respect for this, this sort of relationship that we have. So does that make sense? It's, it's, it's not. Well, it makes sense. Thank you. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say strangers. Maybe I should say, even in a relationship with friends, for instance, I feel like I'm partial to some friends more than some others. That's a very good point. So the Buddha talked about impartiality. And the impartiality should happen when you're with them all together. But that doesn't mean you don't have a special relationship with some friends and see them more often, if that makes sense. It's like, but when you're together, all together, then be impartial. Be generally kind to everyone in the room. And, you know, the fact that you, you know, have more of a, a, you click better with certain people and you have more in common and you do more things together, it's totally fine. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, because it bothers me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, I because I'm not sure if, um, I don't have kids, but I can see like even my mother, she, she tries to be 
you know, to treat to treat us all the same, but I can tell that some are more her favorite. Mm. And I feel the same way because then I don't have kids, but I feel the same way even with my nieces and nephews. Mm. So I guess it's kind of like friends. Some people you just click more, you just you just have more feelings toward them than some others. But I think your mother's got a good point. You know, when it's when they're all your children, then doing your best to appreciate each one and treat them as impartially as possible. I think that's wise. And again, when your friends are all together with you, try to do the same thing. Um, I know exactly what you mean. Probably everybody in the room knows, you know, there are times when there's the, the one that's just not as popular, not as approachable, not as something, you know, or some one of them that you really like, like enjoy. And it's very important to really give that love and attention to all of them as appropriate to their character and what's, what's good for them. So we don't have to act on all of our feelings, thank goodness, because our desires can be pretty unruly, <laughs> inappropriate. <laughs> so um, I wouldn't feel, be careful not to feel guilty about what you feel because the feeling's just there. You can't make yourself, well, let me see if that's true. It's not about trying to, to convince yourself to feel differently. But we do want to speak and act with wisdom and, and not hurt people. Try not to. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes. I'm having a little trouble hearing you. People that you meet that yeah, are strangers. I mean, stranger. Yes. So this is about how we interact with strangers. And sometimes when we're with strangers, we can feel um, closing down because maybe we feel uncomfortable or a bit threatened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves about that. How appropriate is it? Or is it just conditioning? And sometimes it's really appropriate. <laughs> it's appropriate to, to you feel the instinct that this may not be so safe. And you, we don't have to do or say anything um, to make them feel bad, but find a way to you know, work with whatever's going on inside, you know, like, I remember, um, 
I think it was a self-defense training or something where they said, you know, you're standing waiting for the elevator and it opens and there's someone inside that you just feel uncomfortable getting in the elevator. Don't force yourself to get in the elevator. Let it go by (laughs) because maybe there's a really good reason to be uh, feeling that way. But hopefully we do those kinds of things without any, any casting, any kind of uh, reflection on the person because we don't know really. And also a lot of things can be conditioned into us to fear that aren't you know, really um, things we need to fear. So it's investigating those things. But you were saying you'd like to feel yeah. more comfortable and more open. And how we feel inside isn't necessarily what we need to show on the outside. So we can still be kind and we can have our uncomfortable feelings and we can work with those uncomfortable feelings later by ourselves and see what it's about. And then it's okay to be uncomfortable. So what? No? (laughs) Yeah, it might change. Yeah. I mean, talking about this idea of impartiality and the Buddha, there are, co- there are two different teachings that come to my mind. One of them is um, actually a beautiful sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. And I think it's the book of, not, it's, it's the book of nines and it's number five. And usually it's entitled Powers. And it's about... Um, four powers that he recommends that we develop. And he said, when we develop these four powers, there are five fears that we never have to have again. And the five fears are that we never have to fear again, losing our livelihood. We never have to fear getting a bad reputation. We never have to fear being timid in assemblies in groups of people. And we never have to fear death and we never have to fear what comes after death. So you wanna know what the four powers are? (laughs) First one, the power of wisdom. So wisdom is defined here as knowing what's skillful and what's unskillful, what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. And he goes through a list of those pairs, like what's dark and what's light and what's, you know, like you know the difference. The second power is the power of energy. It's the the energy that you need to cultivate and do what's wholesome and to resist and turn away from the unwholesome. The third one is the power of blamelessness. So this really is living a virtuous life. Even if someone blames you, which everyone gets blamed, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, even the Buddha got blamed. So of course it's gonna happen to us. But that doesn't mean they are blaming correctly. You're not being, you know, what we want to be concerned about is would a wise person blame me for what I'm doing? 
you know, what would my teacher think of what I'm doing? You know, we don't worry about people who are just gonna blame you, whatever. It's like to be blameless means to really uphold that virtue and cultivate that. And the fourth one, which was a real surprise to me because I didn't really see it ever before in the suttas, is the power of being able to sustain favorable relationships. So he said, if a person would benefit from your giving them a gift, you give them a gift. If a person would benefit from kind words, say kind things to them, truthful, of course. If a person would benefit from being helped in some way, great. If a person would benefit from impartiality, be impartial. And so it's like, you can see how this works. You know, you're really cultivating your, your community of friends. And when you cultivate that community, then what happens if you lose your livelihood? First of all, you've been a good upright person. And you know what's skillful and unskillful and you're doing it. And then you've got these friends, this community. You take care of each other. And of course, you don't have to be timid in a group of people. You can hold your head up wherever you go. You don't have to um, worry about getting a bad reputation because even if people say things about you that aren't true, it's not going to last. People know you. I grew up in a town of 2,500 people, roughly. Almost everybody knew everybody, and like over half of them were related to each other. <laughs> everybody knows what you're up to, you know, what your grandfather was up to. You know, it's like, well, it's not quite like that anymore. But we need to create community wherever we are. Community of practitioners, you know, get to know each other. So why don't we have to fear death? Well, you live as a good person, you do the best you can, and you're going in the right direction, you're cultivating the mind the virtue, the, the samadhi, the wisdom, it's gonna be okay. What happens after death? It's gonna be okay. So, impartiality was an interesting piece. And you can feel that, you know, if you're working in a group and the boss favors one person or something. Yeah, don't be that kind of boss. <laughs> you know? And then the, the other side, now there, when you study the Buddhist teachings, it's good to study all of them so that, I mean, all, I, I trust the, the Pali suttas and the Nikayas because we've got good reason to be able to trace that back to the but if you only pick out, you know, uh, one of them, you might not have the full picture. 
So there was this time when someone came to the Buddha and they said, why do you spend more time with the teaching and more effort teaching the monks and the nuns than you do the, the lay people or the people from other religions? And the Buddha said, well, first of all, he said, I give the same teachings to everybody. And he did. He was open-handed. He didn't have any like, oh, this is the inner circle and you got the secret mantra. He was never like that. He taught the same thing over and over and over to everybody. But he said, if you're a farmer and you have three fields, this field is really fertile. And this one is, eh, not as good. And then you got one over here that's just like the soil's so poor. So where do you put the best seeds and where do you put the most effort? You put it into the most fertile field. And then the next one, as much as you can. And then the next one, if you've got anything left over. And he said, so my monastic sangha is really the most fertile field. Forgive me for saying that, everybody. <laughs> and the lay followers are the next most fertile field. And the, the ones who come from other religions, then it's, it's not usually sinking in. So we're not going to spend as much effort there. But then any one of us can show up, you know, whether you're lay or monastic, as a fertile field. Really interested, really listening, really studying, really practicing. So don't sell yourself short, depending on that broad categorization. But it's like, well, look at that. Is that impartiality? It's just practical wisdom. And the Buddha was very encouraging of any of us um, developing. So, you know, I see this with many great teachers. They don't turn anyone away. If you're serious, Ajahn Ganha says, if you're serious and you're committed, you can live here the rest of your life in this monastery. <laughs> you know, just got to really be fertile, be that fertile field. So maybe this gives us a, a range, a ground upon which to consider how do I relate to other people? with kindness and wisdom. Any other questions, comments? Yes. A healthy mind? Yes. Find what a healthy mind is. Okay, thank you. Obviously, the health of the mind is kind of like the health of the body. It's, it's on a range. And it can change all the time, right? So you wake up in the morning and you've got a sniffly nose. Your health is a little less good than, you know, than it was. Or maybe in two hours that clears up. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like, oh, boom, it's this way, it changes. 
And sometimes we can notice that our mind is more clear, that we understand what's uh, the task in front of us, um, that we aren't caught up in our own ego self, you know? So when our mind is healthy, we're seeing the healthiest mind is the enlightened mind. The healthiest mind is mindful and clear and there's wisdom. Um, I've heard some monastics say a moment without mindfulness is a moment of being crazy. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's a healthy mind. A healthy mind, you can really put yourself in someone else's position in their situation. You can see how it feels for them to be treated in a certain way, you know, at least to some degree. You know, that's a healthy mind. A healthy mind can practice. Now, what do we do when we're not so healthy? Well, we have to get the right medicine. You know, whether that's time off. Sometimes our minds are not very healthy because we're working way too hard. Or we're way too tired. Or there's, there's just too much pressure, one kind or another. And so we have to find ways to relieve ourselves of those kinds of burdens and see if we can regain some mental health. And sometimes it's really comes down to, you know, the makeup of one's own chemistry and system. And maybe we need to get some kind of support for that. We have a friend who's um, got ADHD and one time he was at a Dhamma meeting that we were having and I started out by asking people when today or in the last few days was your mind still and people had some beautiful examples this one woman was a caregiver and she was giving caregiving for this man and and her mind was soft you know really really solid and kind of you know in the flow and just doing our work and, and then, you know, and I, we got to this person and he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, my mind is never still. A couple of years ago, he started taking a medication that he says, wow, this is so great. It's really like the mind can, can adjust and be still. And, you know, it's like, I know some people are like, no, you should never use any kind of medication. That's not the case. It has to be done with care. But it's like, there are ways that we can support our health, our healthy mind. That's kind of what I think. Okay, so our next phase here is going to be some meditation. And you're welcome to do walking meditation outside or sitting meditation. And we're going to, I think what I'd like to give you the opportunity to do is incorporate walking and sitting and taking a break to do whatever you need to do all together until three o'clock.
Um, and so, is anyone here new to walking meditation? Okay, okay. Um, would you be up for giving some walking meditation guidance? What? Yeah. So, would you like to do it out here on the porch or someplace? Where would you like to meet them? Okay, so if you want, Ayachitananda can give you some instructions on walking meditation right over there on the veranda over there. And you can do that as soon as we start here. And if you want to sit, sit for as long as you like during this period of time. And when your body needs to move, you can go do some walking or take a break and come back. And then we'll all come back at three o'clock um, for a little more Dhamma and questions.